Hey folks, this is Dr. C and welcome to my office hours. So today we are hopefully concluding. That last episode ran into two parts because it went a little long and hopefully today we'll be able to keep this to just one part. Uh, our series on critical race theory. So, um, yeah, just a bit of background for those who may be listening to this and, and don't know our entire context and what gives us the audacity to speak on this subject matter. Or if you're just a rebel and want to listen to things out of order just to get get at us or stick it to the man or I don't know, whatever. People yeah. who listen to podcasts out of order are, are mad uh, and... I can't, I can't job with that. You know, I had a friend of mine who watched Game of Thrones out of order, and it gave Ooh. me physical anxiety. Like, <laughs> they start, they uh, watched the first few episodes of, of season one, and then immediately skipped to season eight, because that was the one that was coming out at the time, and then went back and forth in between the two, and I just, I can't, I can't do it. Um, it's kind of like a game of Clue. It's cool, because then you, like, you get some context, very little, and then you go to the very end, and you start working your way back in weird, convoluted ways to, like, well, wait, why did that happen? Okay, let's go back a few episodes, see if we can figure out what, why they chose this. Yeah. It makes no sense. What's funny about Game of Thrones, though, is if you're watching it like that, you're never going to have some of your questions answered. You're, you're, you're going to wonder <laughs> why. And you'll end up with the same conclusion everyone else had who watched it in order. I don't know why this happened this way. Why Why did the character do this? Who knows? Sure. <laughs> okay, that's that's fair. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, because some of those character choices didn't make a whole lot of sense, but, you know, whatever. All right, anyway, this is not about that. We'll talk about Game of Thrones another time. Um, actually, we have an episode on Game of Thrones. If you're not familiar, please check that one out. It's where we discuss, uh, we have a guest on, and we discuss the gender representation, particularly of women, uh, in Game of Thrones. Anyway, so, moving on. Let's talk about critical race theory relative to media studies, all right? So in the last couple episodes, we talked about, you know, what it is from a foundational perspective, what are the uh, core components of it. We discussed, you know, why is race a social construct as opposed to a biological truth? Uh, and what are the material consequences of that social construct? And today we're gonna to talk about that social construct within the context of media, all right? And so I wanna walk everyone through just a sort of thought exercise. And Barry, I don't know if I've actually used this with you before, but I use it all the time with my students and they universally- Finally, something I haven't heard before. Ha <laughs> 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 uh, And they universally hate this because it makes them uncomfortable, which is part of why I find you know the value in it. So Barry, I'm gonna ask you a very important question. There's not a whole lot oh, no. to it, just very straightforward. Oh no. Did you dress yourself today? Um, no, I dressed myself yesterday. You're, you're, <laughs> you're assuming that the clothes I'm wearing right now are new to today. Fair point. Let me rephrase the question. <laughs> Did you select the clothing that you wear currently? Correct. Okay. Yes. Where did your clothing come from prior to being on your body? Oh, in my drawer. Gotcha. Okay. Before it was in your drawer, it presumably came from where? Uh, the the store I'm I'm assuming or, right. I mean outside of the washing machine prior to all of that yes. the the store sure okay. before it entered your home it was in a store any idea what store you you bought your clothes at it's probably Walmart okay. or something of that nature Target sure. who knows sure uh, Walmart I, I I shop with my eyes closed including my drive to and from just so that I'm it you know it's a mystery and yet you consistently wear almost the same thing to work at least when I was working with you right. <laughs> 
Like, usually, don't get me wrong, it looks good. I'm just saying, there's a theme. No, I have one of those closets that just, like, everything on the hanger is the exact same. It, it's the same item of clothing just over and over and over again. <laughs> so, well, what should I wear today? Choices, choices. So, actually, this is relevant. So, uh, you get it from a store, right? You go to Walmart, you go to Target, yep. DJ Maxx, whatever have you. In my case, Goodwill, that kind of thing, right? So That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, buddy. Goodwill is they awesome. They have the best graphic tees. They, they really do. Uh, and also, some really good comic books at Goodwill. So let's say, yeah, for the sake of argument, let's say that the clothing was made in like China, Taiwan, somewhere in Asia or Southeast Asia, which is often where sure. a lot of the clothing is made, right? Or in places yeah. like in Latin America, such as Mexico or you know Guatemala, what have you. So, but the point is it comes from a factory, and in that factory, yeah. uh, they are using raw materials that you had no part in the collection of, correct? Yeah. Right? Uh, and the generation of the textiles, whether it's from cotton or any other sort of fiber. Uh, and they are assembled using plans that were generated by somebody else, right? Yeah. Someone had the idea of, hey, let's make a shirt that is cut in this particular way and colored in this particular way, and then we'll send it to the factory, and then they'll do that, right? So the yeah. factory is the point of convergence between the raw materials and the intellectual property that is the design of the shirt. So just to recoup, or recap, excuse me, uh, someone had an idea that was then passed on to a factory, and the factory made that idea real, which was then passed through the uh, chain of commerce down through the distributor, and then mm -hmm. made its way into your uh, closet, right? Mm -hmm. Presumably along with all the other clothing that you have. So just to revisit our initial question, did you choose what to wear today or yesterday and it carry over to today? Or did you consent to the options presented to you by other forces? Oh, yeah, I definitely did not uh, choose what T-shirts look like. And I did not have a say in in what the those T-shirt preferences look like, except for my very, very, very minor influence uh, in the market for, you know, purchasing a yeah. particular color design or what have you. Right. Right. So yeah. I use this example of how we essentially wear the ideas of other people that have more power than us as a example of hegemony. And hegemony, for those that are not familiar, is a term that was coined, I believe, by Antonio Gramsci, who was a uh, socialist organizer uh, opposing fascist uh, Italy and Benito Mussolini in the 1930s and 40s. Um, and hegemony is basically the idea that we are influenced and in some cases governed through consent uh, to the power structures that you know influence our lives, right? Basically, we opt in to the choices presented to us. In this case, you know, might be clothing, or it could be any number of things that we could apply this to. Yeah. And so, when we take this idea of hegemony and we apply it to ideologies of things like race, right? Going back to the idea of critical race theory, saying that race is a social construct that has material consequences. Well, one way in which it's constructed is through media, right? We don't typically speaking, make the media that we consume. Some of us are media producers, right? You teach media production and there are students who do that, but even right. in those instances, they're not producing all of the media they, that they consume. Rather, right. the media that they consume is the, uh, is the result of the ideas of other people that were made manifest through media production and have been sold to them, right? So then the question of critical race theory relative to media becomes, how does uh, the construction of race occur 
within media and what are the consequences of that construction of race? Well, so I, I even think from the production standpoint, um, as a media producer, if you want a wide audience or a wide appeal, you are rarely choosing, you, you as the producer are rarely uh, in control of a lot of the choices that influence what gets included or excluded from from that media, mm -hmm. right? That uh, think about like, if I wanted to get a film on uh, PBS, which is certainly possible for for someone of the general public, it's po it, it's competitive and it's hard, but it's it's possible. The things that you have to do to get it on that platform, which is a position of power in itself, um, requires you to understand what the network is looking for, who the who controls uh, and and programs that media, right, and mm -hmm. catering to those interests getting the funding needed to produce at the level that is acceptable for that platform also requires you to appeal to um, the interests of those who have that kind of funding. And, and so you are, you are constantly catering your message uh, to the interests of those who have power that enable you to get that message out and, and abroad. So does that mean that uh, you know, you, you aren't allowed to say anything that you feel like saying in the media that you produce. No, but it does me necessitate that uh, there is an, a certain amount of acceptability requirements that you have to undergo in order to get it onto a platform such as that. And that that is true of YouTube. Even if you think, well, I'll just I'll just publish this on YouTube. Um, YouTube has its own structure and acceptability requirements that you have to cater yourself to. And if you don't meet those requirements, mm -hmm. your, your, your message isn't getting out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and YouTube's a really good example because they do have uh, community guidelines and they do have regulation in that capacity, but it's also a, a consideration for what is going to pick up with the algorithm, right? We think of algorithms within social media as almost sort of neutral forces, but they very much are not. Mm -mm. Those yeah. are programs developed by people meant to boost engagement. And one thing that, for example, we see happens, and I've noticed this with, you know, my TikTok channel and things like that, and other people have commented on this as well. Uh, what tends to do well with algorithms are things that provoke outrage, things that are, that prompt a negative response. Yeah. And there's a there's a whole host of reasons as to why that's the case, but the bottom line is uh, the generation of a negative emotion can be very profitable, right, in this yeah. environment. And so that being said, you are further regulated or, or guided by what you can and cannot address thoughtfully because mm -hmm. maybe you want to say stuff that doesn't exactly feed into that. But that means that you are less likely to have your algorithm, the algorithm pick up your message and reach the audience that you would ordinarily if you went with something that was a lot more controversial, something that generated a lot more negative emotion, that kind of thing. Right. right. So even once you're done negotiating with the power structures as influenced by people in face to face or uh, mediated messages like through email or whatever, where you have to negotiate these steps along the way with the production aspect, then when it actually gets to the publication of that stuff, you're still beholden to another regulatory power system that is going to encourage you to produce a certain kind of material or content online. Right. Yeah. 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 And so what we see with it, when it comes to racial construction is Often it's it's difficult to find good examples of meaningful representation. Um, 
that is not predicated on some kind of you know harm or outrage or things like that. You know, I uh, I've see a lot of folks online, particularly you know uh, Black American content creators, who lament that you know stuff involving black pain whether that's you know tv shows or film or social media content or whatever tends to do much better than aspects of what they refer to as black joy right the idea of celebrating things and just being happy Mm -hmm. and what have you Mm -hmm. and of course you know what does that do for the stereotypes of um black folks suffering or black folk being angry or things like that right sort of perpetuating stereotypes that are deeply entrenched um and on that note, there's also this issue of who gets to tell these stories, right? Yeah. Stuart Hall, who was one of the founders of cultural studies, as we understand it now, um, makes a great point in one of his essays, I forget which one it is, but he says that the thing about immigrant communities and the thing about marginalized communities, particularly you know folks of color, and I'm paraphrasing his words, but the point was that he said, their relationship with media is unique because they are having their identities constructed and then sold back to them mm-hmm. without their input, right? So, for example, uh, white Americans, uh, particularly like middle-class white Americans, will have their own identities sold back to them, but they're being told by people that have a point of reference for that experience, right? But historically, yeah. when it comes to constructions of black identity or brown identity, when you talk about like the Latin community or the Asian American community or the Middle Eastern community in the United States, um, those stories are quite often being told by people who do not have a point of reference for that. So those constructions of race and ethnicity are from the lens of somebody outside that community. And here's the thing about being outside of a community. You can know a community and have been a part of it for, you know, decades, have grown up in it, that kind of thing. But if you're not actually of that community, you're going to get things wrong. And that's fair. Also, it's worth noting that because no group is monolithic, that like it becomes even more complicated. Right. So I had a I had a friend who was at a we were at a conference and he he's a white guy. Um, and he's a, and when I say white, he was born in Scotland, raised in Indiana, uh, Mm kind of white. And he enjoys studying race. That's his area of of focus, uh, matters of race, particularly within like Marvel stuff and comic book stuff. And so we have a lot of overlap, uh, in our research. And he did a project on Luke Cage, the Netflix series. And he was Mm -hmm. discussing the issue of respectability politics and how in the show, they make it a point that the only people who use the N word are black folk that are evil. And so what does that suggest about, you know, constructions of race and the use of uh, that word and respectability politics and what have you? And so we get to the conference and it's I want to say it's at the national conference, the NCA and uh, the National Communication Association uh, annual conference. And he is the only white guy in the room. Mm. And like the 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 fact that he in his uh, in his all his glory his Midwest uh, white folk glory was going to talk <laughs> to black folk a audience of black people and in front of a panel of black folk uh, academics and researchers about respectability politics was like oh oh boy <laughs> and so he, tur- he turns to me and he says he says hey man like what if I get something wrong and what he's concerned about with that question is what if I do harm in my representation of mm. this research what if I get it wrong and what if I do more harm than good? I said, well, here's the thing, man. I said, you're outside of the black American community. Um, you're going to get things wrong. Yeah. By virtue of the fact that you're not from it. Right. 
Uh, it would be the same for me as a Chicano trying to comment on like the on issues related to the Black American community. I'm going to get things wrong, absolutely, because I don't have that lived experience. Uh, I said that doesn't mean you can't say something that's valuable and something that contributes to the yeah. body of work. I said, and so don't feel bad about that. I said when you get it wrong, and someone says, "Hey, you got it <laughs> wrong," listen and take it to heart, and then let that inform what you do next. And he was like, okay, I can do that. And by the way, people loved his presentation. They thought he did a really good job. And they thought that, you know, he had, he made some really good points, right? Yeah. No, no real critiques or notes. But that thoughtfulness is exceedingly important. And it's something that we, at least in our perception, in my perception, don't often see when it comes from producers of media. There's this sort of essentializing of, well, these are all human stories. And so as a human, I can relate. No, no, you can't necessarily, <laughs> right? There is, there is wonder and beauty in the fact that we can often relate to each other's stories, but that's not the same as knowing the intimacies of that experience. And and I, I think there's a certain amount of hubris in this idea that um, I can understand the nuance of a given situation, even if I haven't personally experienced that situation, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. and, or, or even going so far as to say that, like, um, I... I can see things for what they really are, even if I've never lived yeah. like that or lived there or lived with or lived as mm -hmm. something, right? It's um, like, yeah, I, and I, I even think about my own experiences and, and how oftentimes I have asked that same question of, <clears throat> you know, what if, what if I do something like this in this given situation wrong? Um, especially in the context of race and ethnicity representations and and commentary and things like that. And oftentimes, I, I can't speak for, for your friend and that given situation, um, but oftentimes I find uh, those close to me who are asking that question or myself in the past where I've asked that question, um, there's this tinge of um, kind of... Uh, looking for the approval like shouldn't shouldn't i be shouldn't i be allowed to do this without criticism like please like can i can i do this without anyone being critical of uh what i'm possibly about to say you know or or represent or whatever it might be and it's like no like that we're offering this as yeah. a possible explanation and if we're doing so in good faith and trying to offer something meaningful then we should be open to that criticism and recognize that hey i i I can't know everything, yeah. and and you know possibly there's mm -hmm. there's a there's a chance that maybe I am I, I have a blind spot and please help me see that right like there, there's there's a certain sure. amount of productivity that can come from okay let's go ahead and put it out there but let's also be open to you know modifying that idea once new perspectives have have been given to it right and also recognizing that it's not a all or nothing kind of thing, right? Yeah. You can be simultaneously blind in some areas or you can have uh, neglect certain areas of consideration and in others get things right. And sometimes yeah. in the same sentence, sometimes in the same paragraph, right? So, yeah. and I think that's something that people really need to understand about higher education right? in academia and research and that kind of thing, but also in our own personal lives. Like you're going to get some things right, you're going to get some things wrong and a, a critique of your idea is not a critique of you as a person. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's also not a complete shutdown of the entire idea as it is, right? Oh, like, yeah. 
Um, I, I think a really good salient example of this in media and pop culture is Django Unchained with mm -hmm. Tarantino as the director, right? Like, yeah. um, he put together this film, clearly had an impact, clearly struck a nerve uh, in mm -hmm. the, you know, pop culture consciousness and, um, and clearly uh, w uh, reached some critical acclaim. But uh, the moment... Uh, the moment there were uh, people of color who were critical of it and openly so about certain aspects of the film and mm -hmm. its representation and, and so on, um, Tarantino like very publicly goes on the defensive like, hey, I should be able to create things and you shouldn't be like shutting me down. Don't yeah. I have a right to? And it's like, what what are you talking about? No <laughs> one said you're not allowed to make movies. No one's even threatened your ability to make movies. Like, why right. are you why are you going to this extent? Like there there are some critiques of what you've done surely as a film director you've received critiques in the past what's different about this oh oh we're saying you don't know everything oh no oh i'm sorry tarantino <laughs> right. oh man what and and that reminds me about how the authenticity of a uh media construction of a of a racial identity or an ethnic identity does not mean like let's say it's a good representation doesn't mean it's gonna be relevant to everybody right so right. for example i was talking to some folks online um both of whom identified as black americans and they had different perspectives on luke cage on the netflix series uh one of them said that they thought it was weird the way he spoke and that he didn't know anyone who talked that way and he didn't know anyone who talked like the people like the black folk did in that show where someone else said actually that was kind of that was very much resonant with their own experiences mm -hmm. so it's it, again you can't assume a monolith and one text cannot be all things to everybody right uh, and a on that same note a creator a producer a filmmaker cannot you know, be all things to everyone and, and will not receive universal acclaim, even if they get the most, mostly things right by whatever standard we're choosing to, to measure it. Yeah. But on that note, let's talk about not Tarantino, but this sort of uh, history of media representations of people of color in particular. And Barry, I want to talk about one of your favorite films. Oh, no. Birth of a Nation. Oh, gosh. The what are you doing? D.W. Griffin. Oh, stop it. Uh. <laughs> This is character assassination right here. We should note for the audience, I say it's one of his favorites because we've talked about how you struggle with and kind of hate teaching that movie. Uh, yeah, it is not what it claims to be. And it's not what history has claimed it to be either, but whatever. So uh, if you would, set a little bit of context for that movie, if you would. Okay, so Birth of Nation, uh, D.W. Griffith is the director, and it's uh, distil distilled down to its story bones. It's just... Uh, a tale of um, a black man uh, is accused of raping a white woman and the town basically puts together a mob and chases after him. And it's it's a film that's like designed to, to create all sorts of fear about the, the viciousness and and uh, rapiness of black men. And it also, for context, takes place immediately after the Civil War. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. That is a relevant cause because the mob that eventually, uh, you know, do they kill them? Uh, I they... believe so. Yeah. 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 It's been a long time since I've actually watched it through and it's. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, yeah. like, it's also one of the the most prominent uh, displays of the most prominent positive displays of the uh, Ku Klux Klan. Right. In, based in on a book media. called The Klansman. 
Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's like it, it's not an ironic representation of the Ku Klux Klan. It's not a cri critical uh, display. It's a heroic display of of the Ku Klux Klan. But to to bear to your point, it's you know a romanticization of the KKK and basically that they filled a power vacuum after the fall of the Confederacy and were you know protecting good white folks from evil black people and that kind of thing. Um, and it's 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 absolutely horrible to consume and it's credited with being like the birth of modern filmmaking because of the editing styles and camera techniques and things like that right yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, but as you pointed out it's not even really a good example of that there are other contemporary films that do a better job uh, of exhibiting right. those points um, yeah, yeah. It, it rose to uh, some degree of notoriety in part because like Woodrow Wilson showed that film in the White House right? Uh, and is famously quoted as saying something along the lines of um, it is like witnessing history written with lightning. Uh, and what's more, it's all true. Um, because, yeah. in case you didn't know, Woodrow Wilson, Wilson notorious bag of dirt. Um, just, a, <laughs> just a terrible, terrible person. Um, and that is the official stance of this podcast. Uh, <laughs> the reason I bring this up is that that film, from a media analysis perspective, is largely credited with sort of... Um, solidifying a lot of the stereotypes related to uh, black Americans in particular um, within media. And and we talk a lot about, about black American de depiction in media, not because there aren't other relevant uh, considerations for like, you know, Latin or, or identities or Latino identities, that kind of thing, or Asian American identities. Absolutely there are, but because what can be said about them is often most poignantly said about black American uh, representations it's really a bit of a, a unfortunate old hack and trope in that we see variations of these racist depictions spread out, but the ground zero in many cases was the representation of black Americans historically in our, our media depictions. And case in point with Birth of a Nation, we saw the emergence of things like the, uh, the Tom trope, right? Which is to say right. the, the kindly old black man who loves white folks who, you know, have a, a fair amount of disdain for him. Uh, we see other examples like the coon who is someone who is lazy and does not want to work and works hard at not working and is deceptive. We see the buck who is hyper-violent, hyper-aggressive, uh, hypersexual, uh, and is, you know, prone to sexually assaulting white women. Uh, we see right. the tragic mulatto uh, who is a combination of white and black ancestry and is sort of bound by this, what is made out to be like a genetic failure and therefore a tragic archetype. Um, and, and well, and and one of the reasons why this has such significance is because of those representations, but also this was this was a significant form of mass media at the mm -hmm. time that like this this spread throughout the country like wildfire. This was a popular film. This wasn't an experimental yeah. film that you know used uh, some some racist tropes, but like uh, dwindled in obscurity at the time like this was a big deal i mean yeah. lots of people consumed it which is it, it became a part of popular culture at the time and mm -hmm. and that's one of the the harmful damaging things about it as a legacy is that it had such influence absolutely absolutely well and, and one instance we see the influences another one of the stereotypes was the mammy Right, which is a desexualized, overweight mm -hmm. black woman who is maternal, but not to her own children. She's maternal to white children uh, and mm -hmm. is sort of a uh, domestic keeper. Um, and one of the iconic depictions of that is Hattie McDaniel in Gone with the Wind. Right. And so 
Yeah, and she, you know, performed that role. And there's a lot to be said about the politics of performing these stereoty- uh, stereotypical roles at the time, because of course there was no way into film, and in some ways the. Uh, playing of these roles by actual actors of color as opposed to being done in blackface helped to allow for progress of getting to a place where you could have better representation. But the reason I bring this up is because we still see these tropes and modified versions throughout uh, our cinematic history, right? Right. Throughout TV, throughout film, that kind of thing. And so going back to this idea of what Stuart Hall said of having identities sold back, you have black folk who are consuming this media uh, that is being told by white storytellers and they're constructing race in a way that is inherently detrimental and it is essentially dehumanizing and that dehumanization then becomes a part of the atmosphere uh, and not in large part because you have other white folks who are consuming this and thinking this must be true because that's their point of exposure with black folk. They don't want to, they're too afraid to go and engage with them and to take part in, in activities and like fellowship and all that kind of stuff. Instead, they consume them in a mass mediated way, which uh, referencing a study uh, by I think Dana Mastro uh, as well as some other folks um, on the cultivation of perceptions of Latinos wherein they found that people who consume a lot of media are more likely to believe in negative stereotypes, mm-hmm. right? So I, this is a lot to condense down to just a few points because we do have to wrap up, but basically the way that media operates as presenting the ideas of other people as though they are some degree of truth, even within fiction, there's always the buy-in that this has some degree of plausibility and is rooted in some degree of truth. Uh, our brains then process as like, well, yeah, I know it's fiction, but also... Mm, it's real-ish, and maybe that's relevant information, and then that information becomes accessed once we actually have interactions with people of color, people from marginalized communities, and we could say the same thing about like folks that are disabled or from the LGBTQ community, that kind of thing. Right, right. Essentially, we're letting other people define us. Well, and and I think all this speaks to the first point you made about uh, hegemony is that mm-hmm. like this this is the power of the media that we we consume right and yeah. th- like th- this is not this is not just some person wrote a problematic story at some point this mm-hmm. is power because it it teaches us it it helps us yep. interpret the world around us it gives us a narrative from which we can compare to reality and if the, the on- if the only or the predominant stories that we are holding up to our realities and comparing our lives to are these problematic elements that that teach us about stereotypes and and teach us that uh, people are the way they are for Mm -hmm. these uh inherently wrong reasons then you know that's that's the lens i'm looking at the world through and and uh there's a really powerful element to that 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 if gone unappreciated, we're, we're allowing our media to, to um, control certain aspects of our lives mm-hmm. and others' lives. And, and, and the point I want to end on is actually something that ties this all together with a little bit of theory. Um, and there are a lot of theories that analyze this kind of stuff, not just critical race theory. We could also look at uh, social learning theory, which says that we learn how to interact with the world around us through live models, which are actual people that we know in time and space, and symbolic models, which are the mass-mediated images that we consume. And Mm. media won't tell you, media can't tell you what to think, right? But it will tell you what to think about. Mm. And so in the absence of of live models, 
where you're actually interacting with people from these different communities. And the reliance on symbolic models, which will tell you here are the possible representations of these types of folks and here's what you have to choose from, then obviously it's going to perpetuate racist perspectives. Another word for that would be like framing, right? Like oh, yeah, that yeah, yeah. We, we frame, frame certain issues to only contain certain arguments and, and, and so on or certain things that are possibilities within that reality. And, and if you, you only know of a few options to to choose from within a certain thing, like the, the clothing analogy that you, you brought up, mm -hmm. then our, how much of a choice are we really making, right? Absolutely. So go out and make friends with people that are different from you is our point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> step one in being anti-racist, make friends with folks that are different racial identities. Yeah, well, and, and that's step one. Like, step one, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, that's one thing to do. All right, folks. Well... <laughs> Thank you for dropping by the office. Uh, we very much appreciate it. And of course, you know, you can find me on TikTok at uh, Dr. Dot underscore C, as well as on Twitter and Instagram um, at GA Cruz underscore PhD. Um, oh, also just came to mind as I record this uh, recently, I am. So I'm a part of a group of uh, media uh, scholars who look at a variety of different things, um, particularly related to superhero media and uh, and particularly superhero media that, that centers people of color. And so we have a collective Twitter account called Crusading in Color. Uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, please give uh, a, a follow to that Twitter account. We do stuff like have discussions on comic books. We recently did one on uh, Jon Stewart and his role as the Green Lantern and a couple of important issues. We'll also be doing a analysis of, we'll be live tweeting a analysis of him uh, in one of his uh, roles in a uh, DC Universe uh, animated movie so and we do stuff like that from time to time we talk about a bunch of different stuff if this is up your alley please give that Twitter account to follow All right, over at at Crusading Income um, so yeah and Barry you can find me at thornbrookmedia.com as usual thanks for everyone who, who follows me there and uh, sends me messages of love all, all, all of you every single last one of you I'm, I love it it's great bye <laughs> Ha 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 ha.